Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. Another crazy week of college football. And no massive upset, no kind of defining game. I gotta bring in one of the one of the OG national writers for the athletic, Matt Fortuna, to help me figure this out. Matt, you're the guy who writes the takeaways. What are we to take away from this Saturday? Well, just this Saturday, I, I had the luxury of getting to watch all this unfold from uh, the comforts of my couch while our Max Olsing was uh, weathering uh, literal storms and figurative storms in Ames, Iowa. But hail storms, <laughs> hail storms too. I mean, that that did not look pleasant, nor did really the quality of play on the field for the most part there. But uh, my takeaway was the ACC is in trouble. I mean, Clemson probably can't lose a game, and now I don't think they'll lose the game. I don't think they'll be. Uh, favored by probably less than 10 or 15 points in any remaining game. But uh, holy crap, I mean, this was just a bad weekend for a league that, that has had a lot of bad weekends over the last season and a half. I mean, it was bad starting Friday night in Chestnut Hill and and finishing Saturday night with, uh, you know, I wouldn't say Florida State losing to Virginia is the worst thing in the world because Virginia was the preseason coastal favorite. But what's it say about Florida State that uh, Virginia wins that game by seven points and my reaction is, oh, Virginia to even cover against Florida State. I mean, it's just got it really, really that, bad. That says it all. Although, I mean, the way that game ended now, Bad week for the conference office and the refs, too, because right. the ACC game that wasn't an ACC game on Friday night, Wake Forest, North Carolina, ends with an officiating mistake where they should have had one more second on the clock. Florida State, Virginia, ends with an officiating mistake where they should have stopped the clock to move the change with seven seconds and didn't stop it till four seconds, and then Florida State doesn't clock the ball. <laughs> now, Willie Taggart was asked about that, they ended up running a wildcat play with Cam Akers. He said he didn't know if the extra three seconds would have changed the decision. Translation, we didn't have anything going. We were, we were running that wild play, wildcat play no matter what. So you can put that on the coaching staff, everybody, because if the refs had gotten it right and the coaching staff had been thinking, they would be clocking that ball and they would have been able to run one more play and maybe even two more plays. Uh if you're throwing the ball into the end zone real quick, but so you have that, but yes, Matt, you mentioned Chestnut Hill, Kansas whipped Boston college. Didn't beat Boston college whipped Boston college, Kansas. Hold on. Kansas that lost at home to coastal Carolina last week. And BC beat Virginia tech pretty handily two weeks ago. What's that say about Virginia tech? I mean, uh, I loved Charlotte's uh, football Twitter account. They retweeted our colleague, Nicole Arbach, uh, who, who tweeted last night that that was Kansas' first road Power 5 win uh, since 2008, I believe. And Charlotte retweets and says, we weren't even born yet. <laughs> I mean. Wow. <laughs> Solid. Are the times changing, Lawrence? I don't know. I don't want to go that far. But Boston College, I mean, how do you give up 48 points to that team? I mean, if nothing else, you usually have a good defense there. Um, you're on the short list in a year like this one, as you were last year before your quarterback quarterback got hurt, of being maybe the second best team in the league, which of course says more about the league than it does the quality of your program right now. But how does that happen? Uh, I mean, I, I was joking with uh, our editor, Matt Brown, uh, about what we we're going to end up all watching Friday night. And I think he said he had to do something. He was hosting his parents in State College. And I said, well, that's a shame. You're really going to miss that, that Kansas-Boston College game uh, on the ACC network. And he started laughing because we all assumed that would go a certain way. And uh, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, it was a hot mess. And now, I mean, uh, Boston College, Virginia Tech, which is probably its whole other section or, or topic, 
you have to wonder about the long-term viability of the coaching staffs and the state of these programs right now, uh, in addition to what the heck's going to happen to the rest of the league throughout the rest of the season. Well, let me throw another rest of the league one at you, because this is one of the programs that, that we thought was one of the more consistent ones and one that, you know, given the right circumstances, could be pretty good. West Virginia 44, NC State 27. West Virginia got smoked by Missouri last week. I mean, annihilated. And they come out and just stomp NC State. I, there were no words. Like, that's one of those where you – because you're not watching it at first because you assume it's, it's not going to be mm-hmm. a very good game. And then you see West Virginia get out to a lead. And you're like, okay, I'll watch a little bit of this. And they just kept doing it. I see. I, I'm more surprised at how West Virginia played than I am at how NC State played. I said all off season, if there's a program in the ACC that is vulnerable to 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 to, res, to a recession this year, to to going back to the pack. Uh, no pun intended. I thought it was NC State. I mean, I just think when you lose a three-year starting quarterback who is one of the best players in the league, when you lose your offensive coordinator, when you lose your offensive line coach, Dwayne Ledford, who's done great work so far at Louisville, uh, I just thought the cumulative effect of not just last year's losses, but the losses from the year before on that defense were eventually going to catch up to this program. Now, I didn't think it would rear its head in the form of a 17-point road loss to, again, a West Virginia team that got absolutely smoked by Missouri, which got smoked a week before by Wyoming if we really want to take this a step further but um oh the transitive property is going to have a hell of a day having, oh, a hell of a day a on Sunday day. I mean I mean Maryland put up 60 something points and lost to Temple and then uh Syracuse or excuse me Clemson didn't even put that many up on Syracuse so we, we can really make it interesting if we want to here but uh the NC State one it surprised me in the manner in which they lost more than it did the fact that they lost I, I just thought uh, this was a program that was probably worst positions among like the BC's, Wakes, and Syracuse's within that division, the, the best of the rest, if you will, uh, for a season like this to, to, to really take the next step uh, up. I just thought uh, everything was going to catch up to them, and it, it looks like it is, and it looks like it did. Now, they play at Tallahassee, I think, in two weeks. Florida State does get Correct. Louisville next week. It, it would be easy to say Florida State should win these next two games and find their footing a little bit before uh, playing but they Clemson might not. and against Smoke. But, yes, they might not. I mean, uh, they should, probably should have lost to Louisiana Monroe. So uh, I'm at a loss for words right now when, when trying to make sense of every team outside of Clemson in this league. Well, the ACC does come back to Clemson eventually, and I think given what we saw from them against Syracuse and what we saw from them against Texas A&M last week, I think we kind of know what this team's going to be. They're going to smother you. And they'll score when they need to score, and, and they could probably run up the score on you if they wanted to, but they're really not going to need to. You know, and it, Syracuse moved the ball all right between the 20s. It just seemed like every time they got in the red zone, and particularly toward the goal line, they just didn't have an answer. They settled for a couple field goals early when I thought they should have taken some shots. They threw a terrible interception uh, in the third quarter uh, when they were in another position to, to cut the lead to, I think, three or four. Um, they just couldn't really capitalize. But that part of that, too, is uh, Brent Venables' defense. I mean, they answer the bell every single time. Uh, I think uh, uh, I forget. I think it was someone on our staff who tweeted this, but was it three of the five uh, picks that Trevor Lawrence has thrown this year have been – deep in his own territory and I don't think Clemson has given up a touchdown uh, after any one of those picks I mean it's just yeah I'm looking at right now Chris Vinny shared it from Sports Source Analytics three of Trevor Lawrence's five interceptions 
ended up with the other team getting the ball in the red zone, and they've given up zero points on these possessions. I mean, uh, I, the names and faces change, but the identity is the same there. I mean, uh, that's why I just wasn't too worried, especially in a league like this one. I mean, when you bring back all those proven weapons on offense and you recruit and coach as well as you do on defense, I mean, I know it's a cliche to say you reload and don't rebuild, but my God, what Brent Venables has built there is an absolute monster. And uh, that's a scary thought when you look at the remaining schedule. But they have to go undefeated, right? I would think so, yeah. I mean, barring what everyone else uh, in the country does, I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, them being able to absorb a loss with the schedule because they're just not going to have any quality wins unless Texas A&M or Syracuse, for that matter, ends up going off and and having a great year. Uh, They're not going to have a – I mean, Texas A&M will probably be ranked at the end of the year, uh, I I would guess, maybe. Uh, But that's going to be their only ranked win uh, when all is said and done. I mean, I just have a hard time seeing any other team in the ACC – as currently, based on what we've seen so far, outside of maybe Wake Forest, uh, I just have a hard time seeing any of them finishing ranked when all said and done. Yeah, it, it is going to be a tough one for them. Another tough one this week for Clay Helton. Mm-hmm. Now, we kind of thought, oh, maybe things are going to be okay after the Stanford game. But then we see Stanford get shelled by UCF, which tells us something about Stanford. And UCF's good, don't get me wrong. But shelled worse by UCF than they got shelled by USC. And then USC goes to BYU and loses in overtime. I just, Lynn Swan resigned this week. We all know he didn't do it by choice. So the decks are clear. Does USC need to hire an AD first, or are they just going to get this done after the Utah game? I think you need to hire an AD first because it's not like I guess you can make Graham Harrell interim coach after being there for three weeks, but uh, it's a weird situation because you've got that big fish by the name of Urban Meyer in your backyard right now uh, uh, doing the Fox Studio show every week, and that's obviously going to be choice A, B, C, and D, and you have to do whatever you can to get him if he shows any kind of interest of coming back to coaching coaching on the sidelines this soon. Now I don't know whether he is is or a does or does not want to you may i know you you, you know him and you, you you've covered him a lot more thoroughly than i have i, I could see it going either way I, here. I, I don't know how he feels today and it changes from day to day yeah, that sounds that, that's how i probably would have guessed it from the outside looking in so i i think if that's your guy and if he wants to come in um i mean i sure he would personally appreciate having a boss that he already knows is going to be his boss when he gets there but i also think much like uh, the Jim Harbaugh situation at Michigan five years ago. Like, they didn't need an AD. That was their guy. It was always going to be their guy, and uh, you didn't need a genius to figure that out. Um, That said, uh, you need some form of stability and leadership there. I mean, that university, not just the athletic department, but everything that's happened at that school over the last couple of years has just been uh, so inconsistent, so tumultuous that – uh, I, I just think you need a unified front. You need a, a, a standard operating procedure of president, AD, and then football coach to make this work because, again, the wins change really quickly there. I mean, this is a program that won the Rose Bowl two years ago, or three years ago, won the Pac-12 two years ago, had a losing season last year. We all thought that Clay Heldon would get fired. He didn't get fired. He lost an offense coordinator two weeks after hiring him this offseason, uh, and then he found a new quarterback that looked like he was going to maybe possibly – save his job and that's not happening i mean it's just not they're two and one and their next three games are against utah who's a pac-12 favorite on a short week at washington uh and at notre dame and if these games go the way i think our friends of the desert think they're gonna go 
then you know we may be looking at uh, a different coach uh, on the sidelines at USC by midseason. What's interesting is I don't think anything's going to happen in the next three or four weeks, but that game at Notre Dame is October 12th. And there was a stretch where I covered, I think, four straight USC-Notre Dame games where Brian Kelly faced four different USC head coaches. So it would be interesting just from a personal and rivalry standpoint if there's a fifth different head coach uh, taking the Trojans into South Bend, Indiana on October 12th. But I don't think it's going to reach that point quite yet. I think they need to hire an AD first. And again, I I don't think a coaching switch midseason is going to do a whole lot. It's not like they have off-field problems like they did with Steve Sarkeesian. I mean, Clay Heldon is a guy I think everyone likes and gets along with and wants to play for. It's just not working from a from a win-loss standpoint. Yeah, and there's the who's the interim question. Right. Because if you go down that staff, there's not really anyone who, who jumps out as you as a, a potential interim coach. Ed Orgeron is not walk, <laughs> walking through that door. So, yeah, I, I, don't know, I don't know what you do. I think you're right in terms of when – kind of the the cut line is is after that Notre Dame game but you could just let it go the whole season and then do do something after the season if you want to and I realize we're, we're talking about it like as a fait accompli and they're two and one but after seeing them lose to BYU I kind of think it is a fait accompli at this I point. think so too and I mean you no know, no through no fault of his own he was always playing with in some ways with one arm tied tie behind his back because of the manner in which he got hired because they never really held a coaching search when they hired him and that's that's really tough to dig out of, no matter where you are. And again, Rose Bowl and Pac-12 title in his first two seasons. At 99% of the programs around the country, they're probably building a statue of you and not calling for your head because you got blown out he, one he, game here. He's Jim McElwain, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I said that, I wrote this last year. I wrote it last year after they lost to Texas. He is Jim McElwain. You know, that, that's actually I have not heard that analogy. It's a very fair one. I think he's. He probably handles the spotlight and pressure a little bit better than our friend did um, with the shark. Much <laughs> better. Um, I, I could see Clay. Not allegedly. Yeah. He uh, says it's not him. Allegedly. Um, but, I, I mean, I could see Clay Heldon coaching another program very soon. And Jim McElwain is too. I just did not think the coach of Florida would end up at a mid-level max school uh, that quickly. Uh, I just think – it's an interesting analogy the way you put it that way, and I hadn't heard it that way before, but I do think uh, a lot more people are in Clay Heldon's corner from a personality standpoint than there were in Jim McElwain's. Oh, he would have been long gone had he handled things mm-hmm. the, the way Jim McElwain handled things. I mean, that, that was that was the difference. McElwain would have, would have gotten at least to the end of that season, right. if not another year. So uh, that, is, that is the difference between the two of them. But in terms of the fool's gold early tenure mm-hmm. – where people kind of saw through it, it's very similar. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I mean, it, it's a very, very odd situation with the AD thing, and, and it does appear they're going to hire someone who's actually been an AD before, which is what a um, concept. You know, Wait, not you. Wi- wild idea. <laughs> I thought they're hiring you after your column. I I thought so, but no calls. Apparently, people think the horse is more qualified than than me. <laughs> so, congratulations, traveler. Enjoy the job. Well, at least uh, well, if they're going with an Amble AD, maybe they should hire Jim McElwain as their coach. Uh, I don't. Speaking of Jim McElwain, <laughs> a, a player that Jim McElwain recruited, with, that everyone scratched their heads when he when he offered him, came in and saved Florida's bacon tonight. Kyle Trask, who was Derek King's backup at Manville High School in Texas, he was a backup in Texas, career backup. Florida offered him a scholarship because he came into a camp and performed really well between his junior and senior years of high school. And he stayed at Florida, just like he stayed at Manville. He never transferred. Stayed at Florida. 
Felipe Franks gets hurt, dislocated ankle. He's going to be out for the rest of the season. They're losing to Kentucky. Kyle Trask comes in and leads them to victory. There were so many Matt Saracen and John Moxon gifts <laughs> out there tonight because he's from Texas and he's the backup quarterback forever. And here he is. I mean, I was going to say he's the, the college version of the NFL version of Matt Castle, right? Career backup who uh, finds himself in the right situation and, and impresses. And it's like, where, where's this kid been his whole career? Um, I only caught the end of that game and it went kind of the way you would imagine uh, the end of a game between two teams where one team gets every single break in every single game for 30-something years goes. Uh, I mean, Kentucky just <laughs> plays for... It seems like Kentucky broke that last year. <laughs> they did break that last year, but they broke it so decisively that it was it was almost an outlier. I mean, in this game, and I remember the announcing crew saying it, it's like, you probably shouldn't play for a field goal here because you have a redshirt freshman kicker. And no matter how close a field goal is with any kicker, um, it's still a college kicker, and I, I, I think a lot of a lot of coaches, a lot of places, almost take for granted that this isn't the NFL where they're more automatic, and you need to do everything you can within reason and not taking any crazy kind of risks to punch that ball into the end zone and leave no doubt about it. Um, I mean, it, it ended, you know, in a, I don't know if you'd say more or less cutting fashion than the last time they met in Lexington ended, where uh, looked like they had a much well, longer field goal. That was when, when Kentucky and, put ten guys on the field. <laughs> Well, and and the receivers like, hey, they forgot me. Well, they also missed. This is that when they missed the fifty-something field goal, right? That hit the the yes, crossbar. I yes. mean, it's, again, they they broke the streak last year. Good for them. I mean, I think Mark Stoops has done one of the more underrated coaching jobs in all of college football. When you look at the history of that program and what he's been able to build there, especially tonight, also with a backup quarterback. Uh, I believe you also wrote about this week because you've been all over the SEC backup quarterbacks. Uh, that was a good game. It was a good finish. It was a very stressful finish, I'm sure, for Kentucky fans. But uh, Florida has not looked like a top-10 team in any of their games really so far this season. You do wonder if much the same way we thought with USC last week, in a really backwards, roundabout way, they may have found it, Is it fool's gold? Something. Yeah. I, I, there, there's a stretch coming up in Florida's schedule where we will find right. out. I, I don't think it's necessarily the Tennessee game next week. But I think it's the, the stretch that begins with Auburn on October 5th at Florida Field. Sorry, at Steve Spurrier Field at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. Uh, that stretch, so you have Auburn, LSU, South Carolina, and Georgia. That's, that's a pretty tough stretch right there. So we'll see what they can do. I think they can beat Tennessee next week, but the, the defensive depth for Florida – was a potential issue going into the season. You know, how healthy could they stay? They didn't have C.J. Henderson at corner tonight. There's there's a chance he, he could be out longer. Uh, Jabari Zuniga got hurt, and I don't believe he came back into the game. So that that's one of those situations to, to keep an eye on. If if they lose a couple defensive starters against Tennessee or, or you know, down into the stretch, that's where things could get pretty dicey for them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the Tennessee game will be interesting if for no other reason than we'll we'll finally see Tennessee play an SEC Power 5 team. And um, based on how they've played against non-SEC, non-Power 5 teams, they haven't really been a good football team. And I would encourage all listeners, and here's a plug, but uh, to read David Ubbins' uh, piece that went up tonight, uh, basically spending the week with uh, Chattanooga. Uh, it's creepy. so awesome. It is I so mean, great. 81 will lead you to the ball. Basically, <laughs> there is one tight end at Tennessee, 
And if he's on the field, they will run behind him every time. It was inc- I, very good detail from David. It was incredible. It, it, and I talked to David earlier this week, you know, before the game, obviously, and I knew he was working on this story. And he had said, you know, I think I can uh, get a lot, learn a lot from Tennessee and, and be able to predict a lot of this game based on what I'm learning from the staff. And uh, it almost makes you wonder. I mean, obviously, SEC football players are better than, than, than players from, from Chattanooga. No, no question about that from a physicality standpoint. But uh, they knew all that, and they still lost, I think, 45 to nothing, which – I'm not saying it reflects poorly. On, I'm not saying it reflects poorly on anyone, but it, it also, I think, crystallizes for a lot of us just how big the gap is between programs uh, that have a lot of money and programs that don't. Um, but it was very eye-opening to basically see them call out the plays and say how predictable Tennessee was, which cannot be encouraging if you're a Tennessee fan and you've seen your team uh, start 0-2 and, uh, well, get a win today, start 1-2. and and now have uh, the meat of your schedule on deck. Well, that, that's the problem. You can't do that against Florida. You can't nope. be that predictable against Florida because they will blow you out. That, that they're good enough to do that. They, they blew out Tennessee last year because Tennessee played about as mistake-filled a first half as you're ever going to see. But if they're predictable against, against that Florida defense, they are going to struggle. But you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to get back to. You were talking about – Kentucky kicking a field goal when maybe they should have gone for it. It feels like we kept seeing that over and over. Penn State, Pittsburgh, Pat Narduzzi going for a field goal from the one. That one seemed a little odd to me. I'm watching that game, and I mean, Pitt's moving the football. They're playing pretty well. They, they had a, a really bad play at the goal line in the first half with that. Uh, they end up scoring three points when I think they had a great opportunity to score seven. But, I mean, they outgained Penn State. Again, when you're talking about differences between programs, I mean, when you look at the recruiting rankings and um, the work both staffs have done on the trail, I mean, Penn State should win this game, as Vegas said, by, by double digits. And uh, part of it was the weather and the late start and getting everyone out of whack, I'm sure. But, I mean, that was a golden opportunity for Pittsburgh. And they had a great call on that same drive on fourth and one where they hit the tight end over the middle for a big gain and, and were able to move the chains and, and get down to the one-yard line. And I don't – I mean, I've never – I think Matt Brown tweeted I've never seen a, a team that deserved to miss a field goal more than, <laughs> than Pitt did there. I mean, even if you hit it, you're down four points with just under five minutes left and there's no guarantee you're getting the ball back. I mean, you will not have a better opportunity to score a touchdown uh, than you will at the one-yard line, one one yard away from scoring a touchdown. I mean, and Pat Narduzzi's uh, explanation, or, or lack thereof after, was even more perplexing, where he basically said, "It's a two. I'm playing to win, not to tie. It's a two-possession game um, from that standpoint. So we were going to need to score again regardless. Well, you know, they have these options after touchdowns where you can go for two. And if there's anyone that at least I thought I knew – who might do that in a rivalry game, especially in the final meeting between these two programs who have met a hundred times, I would think it was Pat Narduzzi. I'm watching that drive thinking, will they go for two if and when they score here? And they didn't do it. And it just seems out of character for that guy who uh, has talked a big game and called a lot of his own shots and and to his credit delivered. I mean, uh, I, I put this in the column tonight, but at ACC Media Day in 2016, a Clemson reporter asked him how he felt about coming to Death Valley. And he made fun of the term Death Valley, saying he never heard of it before. And Pitt went out and won at Death Valley that year, in the same year Clemson ended up winning it all. Uh, and a kicker named Blewett <laughs> didn't. Well, he did. The, the, he did not Blewett. He did earlier, which is why he they had to go it. back to him, and he ended up delivering uh, in the final play. But in 2017, 
they beat number two Miami when, you know, was, that was that was all smoke and mirrors and fool's code for Miami. But it was the last game of the season. Pitt was already eliminated from a bowl game. They were starting Kenny Pickett as a true freshman. And at halftime, Narduzzi comes out and says, we beat number two in 2007, 10 years ago. We beat number two last year, and we're going to do it again today. And they did it. And then last year at ACC Media Day in Charlotte, he ended his press conference by saying, I'll see you all back here for the ACC title game. And sure enough, despite going 7-7, seven and seven, Pitt was back in Charlotte for the ACC title game. So uh, the guy is hes like the anti-Patrick Ewing. I mean, he's put a lot of guarantees out there publicly, but he's backed them up, which is why uh, he's one of the last coaches I would expect to, to kick in that situation. I mean, what do you have to lose if you're Pittsburgh in this last game against Penn State? I mean, uh, we all know Pittsburgh folks take this rivalry a lot more seriously than Penn State folks do. And believe me, Penn State would never be able to live down losing the last meeting against these teams. In fact, I go so far as to say they'd be so ticked off by it that they might actually reschedule Pitt uh, for a future series because they don't want to end on a loss, which could have happened today. That would have gotten it scheduled again. <laughs> it had to. But hey, it, it, at least 11 guys were on the field for the field Correct. goal <laughs> as opposed to Narduzzi's former boss, Mark D'Antonio, and, and Michigan State. I mean, that was another one. And I'm watching that. And I, I, I see them lining up for a field goal, and I, I don't remember the exact time on the clock, but I said to myself, what are you doing? Like, you don't need to kick this that soon. And it was clearly rushed. They got the snap off with one or two seconds, and it just looked all out of whack. I mean, they obviously hit it and had to, you know, take it back because they had too many guys on the field. But when you go back and watch, I mean, there was genuine confusion there. There was Brian Lewerke looking like he was coming back to find out what the play was, then going back onto the field, then running off the field when the field goal unit was coming on. Uh, Just a total breakdown in communication um, for a program that – they need to win these games. I mean, Mark D'Antonio is tied with Duffy Daughtery for the most wins among Michigan State coaches all time. That, that kick uh, in that game today could have made him the all-time leader at Michigan State, which he's obviously going to get at some point this season. But uh, he didn't make any actual changes on offense. We talked about this, me and you, I think, on Sirius earlier this year. Uh, it was kind of refreshing, right? You don't fire anyone. You give everyone another chance and a new reassignment. And... Uh, they scored seven points. I mean, you just got to do better than that, I, I, especially in that division when you still got to play Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Maryland. Um, it, it, that offense leaves so much to be desired, and you just wonder if that will eventually trickle over to the other side of that ball because that defense looks like one of the best in the country uh, through every single game so far this season, and they don't have a lot to show for it. Matt, before I let you go, we got to talk about Liberty in Buffalo because Hugh Freeze has now coached from a hospital bed from what looked like a dentist chair and today from what looks like the perch that a NASCAR pit crew chief sits atop. I'll say this. He's and he emerged victorious 35 to 17 over Buffalo. He still had a better view of the action than anyone watching Notre Dame's broadcast on NBC did today in front of their television sets because that was the worst camera <laughs> angle cold. I have ever seen in my life. I think I still have a headache and I'm nauseous from trying to watch the first half of that game. Thankfully, it was a blowout and I was able to to work the remote pretty quickly. But uh, good for Hugh Freeze, uh, returning to the actual sideline and returning to the wing column. Uh uh, that's that's I, I don't know what the line is on that, but I'm sure that was an upset, um, <laughs> and that's that's not a bad win for if you're Liberty. I mean that's a that's a pretty big win, and, and we can only imagine what they're going to do with a full time head coach actually coaching on the sidelines moving forward. Even if it gives well, us a lot less I to mean, talk about. Okay, <laughs> we're moving moving toward the actual sideline. So they play Hampton next week. 
And my question to you, Matt Fortuna, is this. Does he coach on a Segway? <laughs> Why not? I mean, they've already shown they're, they're kind of above shame right now, right? Like, they'll do anything if it it gets us to talk and write about them and even make fun of them. And I don't, I think his back really no, I hurts, man. I don't think he's doing it for us to talk. I think he would prefer to be walking up and down the sideline. I think he would too. But you got to admit the differing forms of, of modality. I don't even, it's not transportation, but the differing modalities that they have used, it's pretty interesting. And the, the progression of them it just gets more fascinating every week. Well, that's my point. I don't think he's milking the back injury. I'm not questioning the severity of that, of his pain threshold. But who does it serve uh, in that football program to have your head coach, like, half coach on a game? Like, week one, I'm going to sit in an, an upper deck coaching box and call first and second down plays and do the pregame and postgame interviews. But my offense coordinator is going to call third down plays. Like, who, who are you – how are you helping your football team <laughs> as a head coach by, like – only doing some of that and then uh, turning the whole charade into this big kind of, uh, I don't want to call it attention grab, but let's face it. A lot of us are paying attention to Liberty when we otherwise wouldn't have been paying attention to Liberty. So I, I don't doubt. Well, there's some other stories about Liberty that have come out that <laughs> I think they'd rather us be talking about what, what Hugh Freeze is fair, sitting fair in. Enough, so fair enough. That's, that's probably, probably best for the university at this point. And so I, for one, cannot wait to see him coach on a segue. I, I think he can win coaching on a It has way. turned into one of the low-key uh, biggest dramas and storylines that I think will carry th- through a good portion of the college football season. Where is he going to be? What's he going to be coaching from? What's he going to look like? Uh, it, it, it is definitely spice up our Saturdays, for better or worse. That's exactly right. <laughs> and this was a very spicy one. Matt Fortuna, thank you for helping me make sense of all of it because it was a weird one. No big overarching storyline, just a whole lot of strange. And the moral of the story, kids, is just try to score the touchdown. Stop trying to kick field goals. <laughs> you didn't even ask me for my uh, key you, to Matt. happiness. I'm a little offended. <laughs> it's not Friday, Matt. We only give those to the subscribers. Oh, that's right. That's right. This that's is right. for this is for everybody on the uh, on the Apple Podcasts and, and Google Podcasts, and we love you guys too. We'd love you even more if you subscribe to The Athletic. So go to theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's theathletic.com slash A-N-D-Y-S-T-A-P-L-E-S and get 40% off your first year. And thank you for walking me right into that plug, Matt Fortuna. That's how I know you're a company man. And we, I will tease the great tacos I had today maybe one day on that podcast. So people have to tune in and have to subscribe if they really want to eat well on Saturdays. By the way, you can listen to Matt Fortuna along with Notre Dame beat writer Pete Sampson on The Shamrock. That's the Athletics Notre Dame podcast, and it's a big week on The Shamrock because the Fighting Irish are going to Athens, Georgia to play the Georgia Bulldogs. And a little birdie might have told me that there might be a Georgia podcast coming. So you might have both halves of that game covered. And oh, by the way, we'll also be talking about it here on The Andy Staples Show. Joined now by Chris Vanini, the guru of the group of five, also somewhat of an expert on uh, on Sparty, and we're going to talk about both things, Chris. But we'll 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 talk group of five first because I don't know if people realize it, but there is another left-handed quarterback from Hawaii who can really sling it, and he's at a place where some quarterbacks have had some big success in the last year or so, especially. Another quarterback from Hawaii. 
Dylan Gabriel at UCF looked pretty outstanding today against Stanford. Yeah, you know, he was a guy who got a lot of hype coming into coming into the season. He early enrolled and impressed in spring, and, and people around the program were saying good things about him, but you didn't really know because you didn't really see him in uh, game action. He gets a surprise start last week and doesn't put up great numbers, but then Stanford game comes, goes 22 for 30, 347 yards, four touchdowns, and just absolutely lit up the Stanford defense. And UCF now has looks like its new new quarterback of the future. Another Hawaiian went to the same high school as uh, Mackenzie Milton, and UCF's off and running again. Yeah, it was interesting. I talked to Josh Heupel this week about Dylan Gabriel, and, and basically, so his recruitment was pretty weird. He was committed to Army for a long time, and his only offers for a long time were Hawaii, Army, and Air Force. So Hawaii was the only one recruiting him to throw the ball. Obviously, Air Force and Army recruiting him to run. And late in the season, everybody started getting getting on to him. And, and basically, UCF got on to him because Mackenzie Milton kept coming to Josh Heupel during those Friday night team dinners and going, hey, have you seen what Dylan, what Dylan Gay or what DG did? He calls him DG. So you see DG this week. You see what he what he did this week. You see what he did last week. And he wouldn't stop bugging Heupel about it. So finally, they're like, okay, let's let's take a look at this kid's film. See see what we're dealing with. And and when Gabriel broke to his Hawaii high school passing yards record, he pa- he actually passed Timmy Chang in two on the same night. That's when people started getting interested. And uh, UCF offered. Uh, he, he decommitted to Army right after his official visit to UCF. Then all of a sudden, USC jumps in, Georgia jumps in, and a lot of it came down, I think, Chris, to, to UCF being the first of the bigger schools in there. Otherwise, he might have gone to USC. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the relationship with Milton and uh, Milton's family, certainly a, a big role. Mackenzie's really taking him under his wing there. And Mackenzie Milton's mom is also in UCF. And so they're all, they're all uh, really close. And when Brandon Wimbush had committed uh, as a grad transfer at the end of the, at the end of last season, it seemed for sure that Gabriel would be redshirting because you had Daryl Mack there who, who had taken over from Milton. You had Wimbush coming in and here's Dylan, the guy who was originally, originally the third string quarterback and lighting up Stanford. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Now we saw uh, we saw Kadan Slovis do this to Stanford last week too for, at USC. So it it may be that Stanford's defense is not particularly great, but you know Pitt's defense looked pretty good against Penn State today, and and UCF is going to play at Pitt in a couple weeks. So we're going to get a get a look at Gabriel against uh, what could be a fairly good defense. We know Pat Darduzzi is a very good defensive mind. So uh, you know it, it's early yet, but. How is UCF hoarding quarterbacks like this? I, I mean, it's, Scott Frost is gone, so Josh Heupel is the one doing this now. How do they suddenly become the destination for quarterbacks? Well, they've got a incredible amount of skill guys to work with. And, and the two questions coming into the year with UCF were quarterback and defensive line, which they had to completely replace. But uh, you didn't think Mag or Wim- Wimbush could really – replicate what Mackenzie Milton could do, but you knew that they had some great wide receivers in, in Gabe Davis and Trey Nixon. They had explosive running backs in Greg McCray and Adrian Killens, and you just needed a guy who can get the ball in their hands and and, and not turn the ball over, and Gabriel has shown the ability to do this. He, he played in the first game against Florida A&M, and I was figuring, oh, maybe this is just 
play four games and, and get a red shirt in, but they have very much believed in him. And, and Josh Heupel has done a very good job there. Jeff Levy, the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach. Uh, I thought Josh Heupel really didn't get enough credit for what he did last year at UCF. No, it's super hard to go into a place where they just went undefeated and, oh, by the way, go 12-1. and one. That's really hard to do. I don't care how much talent you inherited. And, and even taking over when Mac took over for Mackenzie Milton, the game plan that they used in that Memphis game was absolutely perfect for what Daryl Mack could do as a player. They didn't just do do what they do with Milton. It was great adjustments by the coaching staff, and and they've done a, they've just they've done a really good job putting guys in the best position. I, I wanted to get to one more game involving a group of five team, and that that's Temple Maryland today. Uh, Temple's game plan defensively for Maryland was fantastic. Uh, that was a team that put up sixty three on Syracuse last week, and Temple shut them down over and over again. And then came up huge at the goal line twice in the fourth quarter. Uh, you talk about a signature win for our new coaching staff. Rod Carey's got to be happy with that one. And not only that, but to make up for all the mistakes that they had on special teams, they had a muff punt, they've had a missed field goal, uh, they had a, I think they had a fake field goal that didn't make sense, and they had a, like a nine-yard or like a seven or a really short punt at the end of the game that put Maryland at first and goal uh, inside the ten, and they got another stop. Uh, there as well. Temple's defense, tremendous job. Rod Carey, we knew that's what they could do. That that was the strength at, at Northern Illinois. Um, and then offensively, they did just enough. You know, they just they couldn't finish drives. They were having problems on special teams, and the defense comes up huge to shut down a team that was absolutely explosive. Yeah, and that's the thing you kind of wondered with Temple was uh, obviously they're good players there. Matt Rule left good players. Jeff Collins came in and, and started recruiting good players. That part of it you didn't doubt, but given what happened with Manny Diaz getting the job and then only being there 18 days before Miami hired him and then Rod Carey coming from Northern Illinois, I just didn't know what this team was going to be. But if, if this team is going to hang its hat on really sound defense and you got to be sound to do what they did against Maryland's offense, I think they could be a force in the American. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Russo had 7.5 yards per, per throw. Ramon Davis had 6.1 6, 6. Yards per carry. Offensively, they were uh, okay. They just had, they just, they couldn't finish drives. Maryland couldn't finish drives either. Neither team could do anything on third down. They attempted a bunch of fourth downs, couldn't get those either. Uh, so there were bright spots on both sides. And, and Temple's best teams recently have been led by the defense. And this may be another one of those teams. Yeah, it, it was it was something. Now, now speaking of defense, you you are the co-host of the Green and White Noise podcast with with our Michigan State beat writer Colton Pouncey. Uh, you covered Michigan State in college. You know the the Spartans very well. It feels like they are reliving 2012 again after reliving it last year. Yep, absolutely. One of the best defenses in the country and an offense that absolutely cannot do much of anything now. In this Arizona State loss, they did have 400 yards of offense, but that's where total yards can be a little bit tricky because they really they couldn't punch it in. Well, they didn't have they didn't have many threats on scoring drives. They missed two field goals, but they weren't necessarily close field goals. Uh, I mean, this loss was just a a coaching failure on every level, all three phases of the game, and just for whatever reason, they cannot put things together on offense and a defense that once again is one of the best in the country is probably going to be wasted on a team that is going to be winning six, seven games. How, how do you keep a locker, locker room from fracturing 
in a situation like that because I've covered some teams like that. I remember the uh, the 2013 Florida team was like that with a just horrific offense, very good defense, and you could tell like the tension between the two units was absolutely palpable. Uh, Michigan State has had some fractured locker room issues in the past, uh, in the fairly recent past, in 2016, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you keep it together if you're Mark D'Antonio when, I mean, this is not last year. Last year, you said, okay, Brian Lewerke's playing hurt, things are not going okay, but it'll get better. This isn't going to get better. I mean, this is what they are. Right, and, and, and keeping the team together, it really comes down to the leadership, the player leadership, and and especially the senior leadership, they had that in in 2012, and that leadership led to the Rose Bowl victory the next year because all those players came back. With a lot of guys back this year, you thought it might be the same thing, but just offensively, they just cannot get much of anything going. Offensive line is banged up. They can't really run the ball. The work is on the run a lot, and it just it, it takes out everything. Credit to the defense for continuing to put them in position. I mean, they, they essentially outscored the offense in the first game, the Tulsa win. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, when you score one offensive touchdown twice in three games, that's putting an incredible amount on, on that defense. Yeah, I, I love that defense. And let's be honest, if you give up 10 points, you, you should win the game. That's against a power five opponent. If you give up only 10 points, you should win the game. And that's the situation. Now, uh, I will say uh, for Michigan State fans who are still mad about the way things ended, yes, you should have gotten one more shot at the field goal because they did try to leap over the line. And the way they leapt, leaped, leapt, I never get that right, was, was illegal. And the refs missed it. But you also didn't have to have 12 guys on the field for the, for the field goal you made. So that that's the problem. It just it just seems like it's one frustration after another for this for this team. And, and that's where it comes back to the coaching. They didn't put on, they didn't throw the field goal team out there until thirty seconds of real time after they spiked the ball on that on that previous play. Look, L- L- spikes the ball. He's looking over for a play. He's asking for the play. What's going on? They turn back to walk to the line of scrimmage. Next thing you know, the field goal team's running out there, and they're out of timeouts because they burned them on defense in the previous drive. And somebody apparently stays out there. They kick a field goal with 12 guys. It, it was the John L. Smith coaches are screwing up situation almost to a T, except for on that one, the field goal team ran out, and they only had 10 guys, and the field goal got blocked. So it was it was complete indecision on the coaches. I don't know who made the call or what theoretically that comes down to the head coach, but the coaches put the players in a bad position and credit to them for getting the kickoff and making it, but it didn't count because you had 12 guys out there and they end up missing three field goals on the game. And when you lose by three, that's your ball game. It's, it is unbelievable that it went down. And then this has been a very well coached team through the years. That's, a, you know, Mark D'Antonio and special teams have been great for for the pretty much the entire time he's been at Michigan State. So I, I just, th- this seems very uncharacteristic. I wanted to ask you how you felt, and I'm sure you and Colton have covered this pretty thoroughly on the podcast, but the decision in the offseason, when the offense didn't work last year, Mark D'Antonio, instead of changing around the offensive staff in terms of firing people, hiring new people, he basically just reassigned everybody. And I've talked to Mark Antonio about this a bunch of times. Continuity is critically important to him. He believes it's the secret to their success at Michigan State. And so I understand. And I also understand on a human level, you just don't want to fire people. 
But, and I was hoping that worked. I, I was hoping that would work because anything that keeps more people from getting fired is a good thing. But it's looking like the wrong decision. Continuity and familiarity is supposed to help you on a situation like the end of this Arizona State game. You're not supposed to have the confusion between the guys, and that's exactly what happened. D'Antonio has only fired one, I believe, one assistant coach in his entire time there. It was a defensive line coach after uh, a couple of years. You're right. Everybody else got a better job. Everybody Dan just Rashad, left. The, yeah, the only other guy who, who could be considered as being let go was Dan Rochard, but he went off to the New Orleans Saints, so technically wasn't really that. And Yeah, he, he he's kept the same guys. He's moved... He just moved guys around. Brad Salem, the guy that he put in as the new offensive coordinator, has a good reputation in coaching circles and, and has turned down jobs before to stay at Michigan State. He didn't join Pat Narduzzi at Pitt. And, uh, you know, there there is – the offense does look different. They are doing some different things these past two games, but there's just no – there's just no flow between any of it. Either the offensive line isn't working or the receivers aren't getting open. It's just it, it hasn't been – all working and it hasn't been for a number of years now even in 2017 when they won 10 games the offense was bottom half of the country they just pulled out a lot of games in the fourth quarter so yeah continuity is what he does and he is you know he's been here for 13 years now and that's just simply what he's going to do and it obviously was a problem today is this salvageable offensively as they enter big 10 play because if it the defense is so good it's almost like the opposite of oklahoma like, the defense is so good that if the offense is just average, they could be really, really good. You know, in, in 2013, the offense started off as a complete mess, just like it had been in 2012 when they went 6-6. Six and six. And it just, it, the switch flipped, like, third or fourth game, they went to Iowa, and suddenly everything was working, and they end up being a really good offense the rest of the way. I've never seen a switch flip like that for an offense ever before. So I can't say it will never happen, but there's no reason to, given the extremely long track record here of it not working. Guy, you know, the, they put up 51 points against Western Michigan uh, because the receivers got wide open, and Western Michigan was just not playing pass defense at all. Arizona State might have a good defense. They haven't a lot of point in the first half all year. Now that was against Michigan State, Sacramento State, and Kent State, so who knows? But I would not be optimistic about the offense if I was a Michigan State fan because there's been little reason to be. Well, they're going to Evanston next week against a team that has played fairly good defense this year, Northwestern. So we'll see. But And, and Northwestern uh, has beaten Michigan State three years in a row. <laughs> it's pouring salt in the wound at, at your alma mater, Chris. That's just wrong. Michigan State and Northwestern games have been very strange. And for whatever reason, Pat Fitzgerald has been coming out on the right side of them with some big passing numbers uh, out of nowhere. So maybe maybe next week's game turns into a shootout for some random reason like it did last year. I don't know what you what you're telling me is Connor Cook is not walking through that door. So uh, it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting because if that defense keeps playing the way it is, every game's going to be close and intriguing unless they're just severely overmatched. But if they're only giving up ten points, thirteen points, they're going to be in every game. Which means if the offense doesn't come around, they're just going to rip people's hearts out. Yeah, and, and that's what they've done for a number of years. Now, I, I think there's talent on the offense. Elijah Collins, a freshman running back, looks pretty good. Daryl Stewart and Cody White are pretty good wide receivers. Uh, they just they cannot put it all together on a complete drive. They don't get the explosive plays that you need, and just for whatever reason, they can never get things clicking all at the same time. 
All right, Chris Vanini. You can hear him on Green and White Noise, our Michigan State podcast. You can read him at The Athletic covering everything Group of Five and also 1 through 130 every single week, which is a daunting, daunting task. So I probably should let you get going on that, Chris. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. It was a fun week, but we got to get ready for next week. We got Michigan, Wisconsin. We got Georgia, Notre Dame. It is going to be a fantastic week of football. You're going to hear about it here at The Athletic. Hey there, college football fans. We're excited to share some big news. Our team here at The Athletic and our friends at Wondery just launched a brand new daily sports show called The Lead that we know you're going to love. The Lead is the first daily sports news podcast that will cover everything from the world stage to your hometown. Okay, maybe not your hometown, but it'll be somebody's hometown, and occasionally it'll be yours. With the help of The Athletic's more than 400 sports writers, co-hosts Kavitha Davidson and Anders Kelto will bring you sports news up close and personal each weekday morning. You're about to hear a preview of The Lead. Subscribe to The Lead on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. There's also a link in the episode notes that will take you there. And check out theathletic.com slash the lead to read the stories featured on The Lead. You can follow sports through sound bites or the full story. From up in the press box or down on the sidelines. What do you want to accomplish this year? Actually, I want to accomplish getting on this team first. This fall, a new daily podcast brings you closer to the sports stories that matter. Stories about players. A guy like Zion just represents that hope of the failures of the past don't matter because we've got this guy now. That's the buzzer. Oh, he knocks it down. Stories about hometowns. You will see hundreds of people wearing number 32 Simpson jerseys uh, in the stands on Sunday afternoons for a Bills home game. And stories about the teams you love. This was the first chance for all those baseball fans to see their guys. From The Athletic, home to the best storytelling in sports. And Wondery, the company behind Sports Wars and Gladiator. I'm Kavitha Davidson. And I'm Anders Kelto. Introducing The Lead. Go beyond the box score, five days a week. This isn't a story where you go to some place and interview the athlete and go home. It stays with you. Are you kidding me? I have never seen anything like that. The lead premieres September 16th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Oh, what a The lead. Sports up close.